song's boring, Sean. It's it's minimalism. John Cage cover. Sean, are you dead? Are those alarms for you? <laughs> oh, hang on, guys. <laughs> Not dead. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about common, inexpensive, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. This is a extra special quarantine edition. We are all I can't see you. We're all recording from different places and varying microphone quality levels. So get ready. Where are the voices? I am your host. Sean Hartman. I'm joined by my regular co-host in secret locations, Bouncy House structural analyst auditor, Jeremy Ruggles. Hello. It's very clean yet springy in here. Has everything been properly sanitized in your current location? Yes, but I hear voices and I see no people. (laughs) And we're also joined by the voice of the Jolly Green Giant, Peter Cook. (laughs) <laughs> I think I'm in the bouncy house, actually. My neighbor upstairs is pacing around. Bouncy house on the Hubble space station. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a record, guys. Does that sound good to y'all? Who's the guest? <laughs> no guest. It's, it's just, just three of us. Just the straight up OG host on this one, y'all. Dang, I got used to all those guests. Long string of them. Well, yeah, we had all the famous people on the show now. We got the ratings boost, and now it's just back to us being self-indulgent and playing our own records. Yeah, and what are we True. What are we going to play? So this record holds the distinction of being the newest album covered on this show so far. We're, we went all the way to the year 1986 with this one, hot off the presses, fresh and clean. It's uh, Headlines by Midnight Star. I remember it like it was yesterday. This this album dropping it. I'm the only one that I think was alive when this album dropped of this podcast crew. I can confirm True. that I was 100% not alive during this album was released. I also was not alive yet. Yeah, was, you were coming. <laughs> I was uh, five or six years old in 1986. Really, this is about as far as I think we can probably go on the show. I don't know that... Uh, you're going to find too many records after uh, 87, 88 that are common. Yeah, for- 88. Can you guys explain why people cannot get the best album of the 90s, Jagged Little Pill, on vinyl? <laughs> Peter, you want to take this one? Well, Jeremy, there was this introduction in the mid to late 80s to the music market, a push of this new format known as a compact disc. Have you ever heard of these? I've seen, yeah, they have them at the museum here. Yeah, they're definitely the type of thing you would (laughs) find in a museum now. They were the original digital storage, and music could fit on those. You could fit about 74 to 80 minutes of music on one disc, and 
they took over the market for about 15 years and then just as quickly they disappeared where did they go does anyone know i don't goodwill i think yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's let's play a track off this this is by the way this is their sixth album like we said 1986 we're gonna start with track two on the album and the first one i heard off of this record it's called midas touch and uh, the song was written by the singer bo watson so let's go ahead and listen to that right now drop it Midas touch. The Midas touch. That bopped. Absolutely. 100% certified bopper. I think that could be an official advertisement for Midas. <laughs> it could be. So I just want to give like. Listener, I saw you. I saw the listener right there. He was bopping. He or she <laughs> or they were bopping. I just want to give a little bit of introduction as to why I picked this record before we dive into any of the history and details on it. Peter and I have been chatting on Facebook separate from Jeremy lately, talking about our shared love of music and different bands we're listening to. And I had just picked up the first album by an artist known as Kashif. Mm, yes. I sent that to, uh, to Peter. We didn't yeah. share that with you, Jeremy. We're sorry. <laughs> but we're, we're jamming on that. And the, the next day after I bought the Kashif record and was playing a bunch, like, man, I just want to get more stuff on this vibe. So I wonder if there's some stuff out there I haven't heard. So I put on a a genuine Pandora station with Kashif and that song Midas Touch by Midnight Star came on. And I've got some of the more popular mid-period Midnight Star records that I love. I've been playing a ton for years DJing, but for some reason I'd never actually played this record. The album cover is definitely a little cheesier than some of their previous works. So my, my thought at first was like, oh, this probably is not as good as their earlier work and boy was i wrong yeah the one i'm familiar with that i've had for a few years i don't even know exactly where i picked it up is planetary invasion are you familiar with that one sean yep that's the album right before this one yeah yeah and and that one 
is uh, that's the one that I knew before you selected this and I did preview it, but on that one, it's a lot more of like a sci-fi type thing almost. Yeah, they were definitely riding that pretty hard with that album and the one before it. There was definitely a theme with a lot of late 70s and early 80s funk having that kind of space theme going on, the space disco and the space funk, especially with the whole like parliament aesthetic. A lot of bands were were picking up that vibe. Yeah, it makes sense that yeah, was, others would go that route. But yeah, this album is in, in some ways kind of a departure from that. I don't know how much time either of you have spent with the album cover, but it's it's very glamorous. It's not spacey at all. There's just some very, very pretty, very well-dressed people on here. I noticed they had a song called Close Encounters that was a little bit spacey. Yeah, they didn't fully divorce themselves from that aesthetic, but it's it's a bit of a shift. I noticed that on the earlier, on this album, I should say, when I was previewing it, Sean, I noticed that they seemed to abandon a lot of the, uh, what, what is the vocal effect? The uh, It's not a talk box, but it's like a... The, the vocoder. Vocoder, yes. I noticed that there isn't as much use, or maybe not even any of that on this record. No, there's a little vocoder. There is, there is a little. Yeah, just a little. Not not quite as heavy as as on the previous two records for sure. Would this be considered electro? Yeah, either electro funk, electro funk, electro pop, or biggie funk is another one of the common genres that it's considered. I wasn't. I have to admit, I wasn't really familiar with the electro genre term, even though I'm a huge like Zap fan. I somehow failed to note that part of the wikipedia entry when <laughs> enthusing about them and first learning about them and i was at ellen and i went to a uh, jordan jesse go uh, jordan morris and jesse thorne from maximum fun we went to a live performance of them and jesse thorne dj'd afterwards and i went up to him uh, he was playing all this funk and soul and i went up to him and asked if he had any zap and he said no i don't have any zap with me uh but I had some other electro that I was thinking about playing. That reminds me, I'm going to play some of that. And I'm like, what electro? Is that the label they were on? What? <laughs> no, no, that's the genre. So I learned. He schooled me. Yeah. I definitely more commonly hear it described as boogie funk, especially in the DJ circles, which is a term I've gotten more familiar with over the years of DJing. That's kind of become like a specialty of mine in DJing. I buy a lot of similar stuff to this. But it was one of those things where in doing research for this episode, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of what that subgenre is, but maybe not in a way that I could fully like accurately describe it to someone else. So I, I looked up the actual Wikipedia definition of what boogie funk or electro funk is. And one thing they said on there, which I found interesting, is one of the defining features is it's a shift in the beats that are accented. A lot of the disco stuff like the disco funk stuff is, you know, four on the floor. The one is accented especially, and then every other beat is accented pretty heavily. Where boogie funk, electro funk, post-disco keeps some of that same energy, but shifts the focus to the two and the four and brings back a little bit of the more old-school R&B flavor into it while still having a very electronic, very synthesizer, very drum machine-heavy sound. Wow, so it gets it's really specific to... The approach. Definitely. It's kind of the, you know, the halfway point between the disco funk and then 
the late 80s, early 90s, more pop sounds and New Jack Swing. And then into as hip hop is starting to become more popular, a lot of funk bands started becoming much more hip hop influenced. And you can hear a little bit of that on this record as well at points. Absolutely. It definitely it's starting to sound like hip hop from that time period, very early hip hop and early shades of New Jack Swing. Definitely. But I feel like they're still retaining their own artistic stamp on it a little more than other funk bands from this time period. A lot of bands, especially ones that started in the mid-70s as Midnight Star did, by the time they're trying to incorporate this full-on electronic transition, it just doesn't work well. We kind of touched on that back in the Brothers Johnson episode, how there's very few bands that pull that off. And I think Midnight Star does it as good, if not better, than just about any other of their contemporaries. Yeah, When I was reading up on Midnight Star and the Callaway Brothers, I'm guessing you're going to get into them. Yeah, a little bit. It seems like grunge just killed them off. They, like, disappeared. It seems like the 90s took them down, not the 80s. As did many. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they were were still working with a lot of their contemporaries who were still going, but I'm sure they weren't making nearly as much money as they were in the the early, mid-80s. Well, I have to think even, uh, like, Tony, Tony, Tony was, what, two years after this? Yeah. And that's a huge difference. That's two years where it's a huge difference in sound by that point. Oh, totally. And honestly, even here in 1986, there's not a ton of bands that sound quite this good. A lot of them are a little more watered down. Like, this album has a really good balance of that human touch on the electronic instruments, and there is a good blend of non-digital instruments mixed in here, and I think they nailed that blend really really well on this album i'm thinking cameo word up is right around the same time isn't it is that 86 i don't know exactly what year but that would be a similar time yeah they were definitely contemporaries that maintain their popularity level through this cool and the gang is another example they did a couple of pretty big tours with cool and the gang during this time period from what i'd read nice well do we want to feature another selection do you have any more you want to say before we do that Yeah, I just had a couple pieces of detail before we go in. So this is officially the last good record by Midnight Star. (laughs) Officially. Yeah. (laughs) After this record was done, like, while, from what I understand, like, while the singles were still out, the Callaway Brothers left the band, and Midnight Star continued and put out a few more albums and still tours, but were just never close to the same. Reggie Callaway was the, basically the band leader, even though he was not the lead singer, and didn't always write all of the songs, but his production and overseeing of the songwriting definitely lifted the songs into their final form. And w- without the the Callaway Brothers, the band was just never the same. And then, like I'd said before, people are definitely more familiar with their two previous albums, No Parking on the Dance Floor and Planetary Invasion. And while those albums are amazing, I think they kind of unfairly overshadow this record. We've talked before about reading the all music reviews of different albums and whether we agree or not. And they kind of had the viewpoint that I was thinking they would have with this, where they focused more on the sales as if that was like the only way to tell if a record was good or not. And even on like Wikipedia and everything, it's all just like, you know, their previous two albums were amazing, huge hits, launched their career. And then this album did okay, sold a little better in the UK than did in the US. And then they were done. Well, it's like, well, this album is really, really good musically, I think, regardless of whether it sold as well as the other two albums. I think they took a swing and a miss by calling it Headlines, and I think 
that song to me was the least good one, honestly. <laughs> well, they didn't. Isn't there a, a section where they say like, and one of the songs where it's like, here's a headline: uh, Midnight Star drops a funky beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> While we're still, since we previewed Midas Touch most recently, uh, yeah, the, that's uh, Greek mythology, right? King Midas? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I, I think he, he t- everything he touched turned to gold. I think it actually says that in the song. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I know it's mythology. I just didn't know if it was Greek or not. So we'll, we'll go with that. Sure. <laughs> Geek mythology. <laughs> All right. I got a track I want to play. Uh, one of the things I think makes this record stand out is that even a lot of the like mid-tempo and slower songs in here still bop pretty hard which is super rare for a funk record peter you had commented really liking the song close to midnight which i agree is another album standout so that's what we're going to play next Ooh, nice and this song was written again by bo watson the lead singer and also guitarist melvin gentry so here's close to midnight track four on midnight stars headlines that song it really could have uh it could have been cheesy and but somehow they they just deliver it It, it's not like those uh brothers johnson tracks that we did not feature on that episode that were kind of cringeworthy totally and and it's it's kind of subtle elements that elevate that song like the points where the background vocals come in and there's just that like slight delay where the instruments drop out so that beat hits harder and then the vocals come in on top of it like mm, so good They'd have some interesting stuff going on with the, uh, I'm assuming the drum machines, the percussion in there too. That's kind of getting into that new Jack swing. Yeah. And I don't know how much of it was drum machine versus electronic drum kit. The one music video I saw for Midas touch, they're playing what looks like a half electronic, half real drum kit. I mean, I have no idea how that compares to their live or studio setup, but yeah, I was talking to both of you beforehand about trying to 
approached this episode with some knowledge of synthesizers and drum machines that would be used on it. And I realized that I, I, although all three of us have musical experience, I don't think any of us, any of us are really electronic experts when it comes to making music. And I didn't want to try to fake it and come at this episode. Like I knew what I was talking about, but <laughs> probably for the best. Um, there are some, yeah, <laughs> well, there's probably some gearheads in our, our listening base who could tell us more, but people do talk about this online. There are people that are interested in, you know, what type of synthesizers and drum machines they're using on these. It's all kinds of names. Actually, Katie from our, uh, what was that, um, Synergy episode, Katie May, mm-hmm. she probably is one of the most knowledgeable synthesizer people we've had on the uh, program. Yeah, absolutely. Get her get her in the chat room here. Yeah, phone, yeah. phone a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I remember her mentioning the profit on that, and that seems to be one that they're using, uh, that they were known for using, uh, Midnight Star, the profit synthesizer. Yeah. From what I understand, they're kind of one considered to be one of the main architects of the electro and boogie funk sound. And I think part of that has to do with just the level of talent that this band had. Almost everybody in the group were multi-instrumentalists. They were all songwriters. They were all singers. A lot of collaborative effort went into this from people who were top of their game musically. Yeah, I kind of thought there's saxophone and there's a little bit of obvious guitar. And then the rest of it had me wondering, like, what's real and what's not. Sure. Like, the textures... All the rest of them, the textures sounded like synthesized or like MIDI or something, but yeah, I'm sure some of it was real. Like what are the instruments of the band, Sean? On the record jacket, you got uh, the Callaway brothers, Reggie and Vincent. Reggie played flute, trumpet, keyboards, background vocals. Vincent did vocoder, keyboards, trumpet, and trombone. You got Jeff Cooper on guitar and synthesizer programming. You got Kenneth Gant on bass guitar, bass vocals, and keyboards. Melvin Gentry doing the lead vocals, lead guitar, background vocals, and percussion. And then Belinda Lipscomb doing lead vocals and background vocals. She might be the only person not playing instruments. It seems like she was strictly a singer in the band right from the beginning, but did generally most of the background vocals. I think like multiple, multiple background vocal takes on each one. And then uh, you got Bobby Lovelace on drums, percussion, and drum programming. Bo Watson on keyboards, synthesizer programming, lead, and background vocals. Bill Simmons on keyboards, saxophone, and synthesizer programming. Yeah, there are on my the cover of Planetary Invasion. There are nine members. Is that how many you just named off? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah, with a special guest uh, tenth artist on one of the tracks that we'll talk about in a minute. Ooh, yeah, ooh. foreshadowing. Yeah. So let me just dive through a little bit of the band history biography real quick here. They were formed in 1976 at Kentucky State University. Formed by the band leader, who was a trumpeter, uh, Reggie Calloway. Everybody else mentioned there. Most of those people were in the band from pretty close to the beginning after initially forming they later added reggie's younger brother vincent who was a trombone player which is the other thing that i find interesting you know they were both just horn players when the band started and eventually worked their way into doing all of the production i mean they're listed as the producers of this album and doing most of the like overseeing synthesizing programming on here very multi-talented guys it kind of makes sense when you hear it though there's I noticed a lot of the music was not 
like clusters of chords, but like lines interacting with each other. So that kind of makes sense coming from like a trumpet or trombone player. Yeah, definitely. I agree. That makes sense. So yeah, they were Sorry, signed. Did I interrupt you? <laughs> no, that was that was a good interruption. I accept. <laughs> I ain't even mad at Thank you. Thank you. They were signed to. Oh, two, two. <laughs> A Tupac reference, right, Sean? <laughs> Absolutely. Just for you, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Let's see if I can say this this time. They were signed to Solar Records in 1978 after being noticed in a New York City showcase. Uh, they didn't drop their first album until 1980, from which I understand was partly the band and partly them using a lot of studio musicians to make the finished product. I haven't really spent a lot of time with their first two records. They're much harder to find than everything else, so I've never got physical copies. I played some clips in doing the research for this, and the the records are good, but I feel like they kind of got better with each record. They were just like, as I'm sure they were all getting better at their auxiliary instruments and getting better as a cohesive unit. You hear so many bands where their first record is amazing and nothing else quite lives up to it, whereas this group just keeps getting better. Other than naming their albums, because No Parking on the Dance Floor is clearly a better name than all the rest of their albums. <laughs> yeah, so they're... <laughs> uh, Did I throw you off again, Sean? Oh my god! Ooh, that, wasn't, that wasn't the same reaction that time. <laughs> yeah, it's not funny anymore. Sean's getting upset! <laughs> Serenity <Drake>. now! <laughs> Uh, so they started to get some hits on their second and third records, but it wasn't till the fourth album, No Parking on the Dance Floor, where they really blew up as international superstars. And it seems like part of the reason why they really just officially hit their stride around that time was adding the drummer I mentioned before, Bobby Lovelace, who came in mm-hmm. from a Casablanca band called Mantra, who I'd actually randomly bought their record about a year ago, and it's really, really good early 80s disco funk stuff so makes sense that they had like a another pro joining the band i guess before that they'd all kind of been sharing drum programming duties for the most part whereas after bobby joined they were all able to kind of focus a little more on their specific instruments especially the guitarist i guess was doing a lot of back and forth between drum and guitar and this allowed him to just focus entirely on doing all the guitars and getting them right they were from kentucky the band yeah, I think they moved to New York. I mean, it says they were noticed in that New York showcase, but originally they, they all met in college in Kentucky. I can't think of many other funk bands from Kentucky. Yeah, you know, there definitely wasn't really a hotbed. There was a lot of Ohio funk bands, though. Yeah, Zap is from Ohio, right? I don't know if Zap is from Ohio, but I mean, like, you know, obviously the Ohio players, there was a ton of mm-hmm. bands in Dayton. And the OJs? Were the OJs from Ohio? Yeah. Okay. I guess I, I don't know if the dramatics are, or if they were from uh, Detroit. I think Detroit initially. Okay. I don't know. I don't often You're pay attention. Get back on the point. <laughs> I don't often pay attention <laughs> to where bands are from. So you guys are throwing me for a loop with all this. Well, I'm just, yeah. Kentucky definitely seems, unless I'm, I'm just not hip to a funk scene in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, I have to think they probably stood out, but it might've also taken them a while to uh, generate, interest being in that area from you know like label interest oh, I, I definitely agree with that yeah i don't know if i've ever heard of another funk band from kentucky i'm sure there's a, a couple but it's not the place you think of first as a hotbed for this kind of music <laughs> their breakout album no parking on the dance floor came out in 1983 and that album went double platinum featured their two 
two of their best known singles, Freakazoid and the title track from that album. And then they fo- very electro. Oh yeah. Like Freakazoid. Yeah. Tons of vocoder yeah. on Freakazoid. I've, I've played both those songs a bunch at like house of boogie dance parties over the years. People love those songs. Yeah. And then they followed that up in 1984 with the album planetary invasion, which featured their highest charting single to date as uh, a song called operator. And it's actually their only song that made it to the top 40 in the pop charts. Wow. You know, they did really well in the R and B charts with a handful of other songs, but that was really the only time they crossed over officially. That one is also a vocoder heavy song, I believe. Absolutely. Unless y'all have another point you want to talk about, I think we can jump into one more track here. Give it to us. Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna play the song Engine Number Nine, one of my other favorites from this album. That's uh, Side B, Track Two, and this was written by Bobby Lovelace, the drummer, and Melvin Gentry, the guitarist. And this is the one that features the special guest artist uh, Marcus Miller on bass. Are either of you guys familiar with that name? Not negative. Not a fan. Marcus Miller is a big name in like jazz, bass, music nerds. He's one of like the most talented bassists ever and he was also one of the most in-demand bassists during this time period especially in a lot of the fusion jazz and some of like the funk crossover records like if there was a good really funky smooth jazz record in this time period there's a good chance marcus miller was on it somewhere awesome let's hear him let's do it make sure you get the gnarly guitar solo okay i'm on it was not on my end this time was there a train at your house jeremy <laughs> no no oh, that, it was in the song engine oh my number god. nine. Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a that's a great cut that's a great cut though you know i was thinking while we we're listening to that that uh 
I feel like this band is not really recognized as being a great vocal band in the funk world, which is kind of a shame because the vocals are incredible on this album. They're such good singers. And I think a lot of that was, was buried with the, the vocoder effects in their previous efforts. I saw in all music in the review for this, they called the vocals bland. I know that, that kind of pissed me off when I was reading that. I was like, man, the vocals are amazing on here. Yeah, I think if anything, it might be that they don't have weird enough voices to stand out, maybe. Someone like Prince or Madonna have a pretty like distinct voice, you know, of the, that era. Whereas they're, I think these singers are almost, in a, some sense, like more traditionally better. Yeah, I would agree with that. And looking at the list of artists that like the Callaway brothers and Bo Watson worked with after this, they worked a lot with definitely more vocal groups like the whispers and Babyface and people like that. So it, you know, they definitely felt, I think more at home with the traditional doo-wop R and B inspired vocal groups. But yeah, it's just weird that they weren't recognized for that. I think there may have been like a psychoacoustic effect going on where for those of you out there, your brain can only hear three things at a time in focus. And if you listen to those tracks, there's like things going on all over the place. So I imagine it probably like draws your ear away from the vocals unless you're staying focused on it. Yeah, I had that experience when previewing the album. I would get start noticing all the different things going on and be like, what about the vocals? Oh, they're awesome. <laughs> It is definitely one of those albums where you can focus on different things. Like in part of that track, I was just like, oh man, that guitar lick is so tasty and so rhythmic. Like just tiny little stabs at like the exact right moments. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, but these vocals are so good too. But the drums are just so well programmed. And how many synthesizers (laughs) are on this? Like you just keep bouncing around. Yeah. 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 I kind of felt exhausted by the end of the album when I listened to the whole thing, honestly, like. It's so bombastic and boppy and so many different things going on. I was just like, whew. <laughs> yeah, it's, if funk albums often don't feel like a cohesive album, you know? A lot of times they're, they're generated mostly for the dance singles, and it, it does sometimes feel weird to just put on a party record from start to finish. It's a, it's a weird <laughs> yeah. experience. Jeremy also felt the need to be working out to the entire thing. So that might be uh, <laughs> responsible for his exhaustion. Actually, this is, this is actually even funnier. My girlfriend was trimming my hair up so I couldn't move my head at all because <laughs> there's like scissors by my face and my head. So I'm like trying to focus on not moving or bopping my head, which is really hard with that music. Nearly impossible so with this album. Part of it. Yeah. Not recommended for getting a haircut, too. <laughs> Truth. What would you... Haircut 100. What are your guys' uh, top five favorite bands to receive a haircut, too? Haircut 100. Would the aforementioned Haircut 100 would be number one. Pavement, number two, because of the Cut Your Hair video. Okay. Uh, hair, Nazareth, because of Hair of the Dog. Uh, keep going, keep going. I ran it. Okay. okay. Uh, also, what are other hair bands? That song, Signs. Where the guy tucks his hair under his hat. Spines. Signs, like sign, oh. sign, everything. Oh. Yeah, but which version, Tesla or the uh, um, five-man electrical band? I'm not an idiot, so Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we need what? Well, my favorite is uh, the five-man electrical band, so that's five bands, five artists. I was going to say you could put pretty much anything by Flock of Seagulls down at number five, and that should be fine. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Get your angular haircut. I'm glad we all worked that out together, guys. We can get through this. <laughs> As I mentioned before, this is their sixth album and final one with the Callaway Brothers. They left right after this album came out. And they started a band called Callaway, which had a couple big hits in the early 90s, from what I understand. And then they shifted to being pretty much just producers and songwriters. They worked a lot with Teddy Pendergrass and Levert. And then also with their label mates, The Deal, D-E-E-L-E. And the, <laughs> the, the singer from that band was a guy named Babyface who went on to a pretty successful solo career after that. Peter, I don't know if you're familiar with Babyface at all. Yeah. Yeah, he worked with Eric Clapton. Of course I'm familiar with Babyface. <laughs> uh, from what I under- tell, us, tell us some jokes. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, God. No, don't. <laughs> I know a lot of Eric Clapton jokes, and I will be telling none of them on this podcast. For the best. Okay. <laughs> From what I understand, they were pretty close with Babyface before he got big. Babyface actually like assisted with some of the songwriting on some of their earlier records, so they were longtime friends with that guy. And then, as I said, singer Bo Watson also went on and did a lot of production and songwriting. He worked a lot with Tony Braxton, and then also oh yeah, uh, helped write a couple of the Whispers' late period hits. And yeah, that's. He also wrote a song for NSYNC on their No Strings Attached album. Yeah, that's the other thing I was seeing is like this band was pretty revered in a lot of the the '90s hip hop and New Jack swing artists. Uh, this was like a, a template for a lot of that sound going on. Belinda was on a Snoop Dogg record like later on in the mid to late '90s or something like that. Really? Yeah. I'm wondering which one that was. I did not write the note down, so y'all are going to have to just figure it out yourself. Was it the dog father, or was it the game is to be sold, not to be told? I, I just don't <laughs> know. <laughs> That's all right. I can look it up. Okay, okay. Well, you guys got any closing thoughts on this album before we play our final track? Are you going to play the last song on it? I was going to close with the title track. Uh, you, you guys can submit your arguments for a different selection if you'd like. Oh, the final song is the best one on the album, in my opinion, and the one you want to play is the worst song in the album, See, in my opinion. No, I'm gonna have to. That's dis- my argument. <laughs> I am gonna have to disagree with you. I really like the the title track, but I'm you know, traditionally I've always started with the first song and ended with the last song in records that I've picked. So I'm I'm okay with with ending with uh, the final song if that's okay with Peter. Well, something I'll I'll say that's totally fine with me. But something that's interesting is to me, Sean, especially because. Uh, this is kind of like we mentioned at the beginning, it's kind of starting to lean into the sounds of hip hop from the late eighties, that time, mid to late eighties. And some of the stuff is a little bit goofy. Oh yeah, definitely. There's, there's some silliness to it. I mean, they've kind of always had that going on too, you know, like no parking on the dance floor is a very silly album in a lot of concepts and the, and the, uh, the album cover is super silly on there too. I, well, it's just making me think that you need to give Freestyle Fellowship another chance. <laughs> okay. You told me it was too goofy for you. I, I just, <laughs> you know what? I changed my mind. Play headlines. Ooh. Just play headlines. <laughs> Are we going to go out on the goofy one? All right, let's do it. This is track one, title track on Midnight Star's album, 
headlines from 1986. Thanks for listening to another fine episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Who are the co-hosts? I am Peter Cook, signing off from the Hubble. I am Jeremy, signing off from the Bouncy House. And I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Hartman. Goodbye. 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 Extra, extra, read all about it. Extra, extra, read all about it. I'm talking front page stories all over the world. It shook up men, women, boys, and girls. The headlines read, if you want to be rich, then you better make sure that you got your shit. Oh, come on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you'd like to help us out, you can do us a great favor by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use where you can write a review. Please give us some kind words. It would help us out greatly. You can also support us on Patreon. We have some special content we have generated just for those who want to help us out in this endeavor. You can find us at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. No punctuation, no spaces. And you can also reach us personally at ibuythatpodcast at gmail.com. The headlines are going to read, I'd buy that for a dollar. Number one music history podcast. Thank you. It's rocking in the funny paper jam in the sports. It makes your body so wet. A devastating thing that you never forget.